There's something very important I forgot to tell you. What? Don't cross the streams. Why? It would be bad. We got so much trouble on our minds, refuse to lose. Here's your ticket. Express about to get wicked. Like Q-Tip said, can I kick it? Stick it? Trip it like butter on a biscuit? Fix it. How? Do something now. Are they really going to allow a default on our debt? Will they really let bond yield spike after 10 rate hikes? Force the government to close. What happened to those promises and proclamations about the healing of a nation on the precipice of a recession, no less? Pledges of unity, doing right by you and me. We got to do it on our own. We investors ride alone. We plan for whatever. Nothing more, nothing less. Siempre estamos listos in El Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. Despite the chaos around the debt ceiling impasse, U.S. equity markets did manage to close higher for the week last week, even with Friday's mild sell-off. Even the Dow Industrials managed a slight gain for the week, the first in four, and the NASDAQ kept on doing its thing, rising 3% for the week and close to 21% so far this year. That's a bull market. How about that NASDAQ 100, the 100 biggest stocks in the NASDAQ composite? That hit a 52-week high on Thursday, and it's up more than 26% so far this year. That's the first 52-week high for the 100, and the first time it hit a new one-year high in almost 18 months. Guess what usually happens when the NASDAQ 100 makes a new high after going more than six months without one? It's even higher a year later. 14 out of the last 14 times that's happened. That doesn't mean it's going to happen this time around. Anything's possible, of course. But trends in motion have a way of staying in motion until something big knocks them off course. That something big could come in the form of a U.S. debt default, which we talked about in detail last week. A default could lead to a U.S. credit rating downgrade, which in turn could cause interest rates to spike. And if you hadn't noticed, stocks, especially gross stocks like the ones you'll find in the NASDAQ 100, don't particularly like a dramatic rise in treasury yields and interest rates. And that leads us right in to our big three for the week. Number one, it's not just the NASDAQ 100 that's topping a 52-week high lately. According to our pals at All Star Charts, 178 large cap stocks are within 5% or less of a 52 week high. Expand that to mid caps, 2 billion and higher, 329 stocks are within 5% of a 52 week high. And then go global because international markets are having a block party. Germany's DAX index closed at a record high following similar milestones reached by France's CAC 40 and the UK's FTSE 100 earlier this year. Worries about a recession in Europe? Don't tell these stock markets. The ECB and the Bank of England, they've been on the same rate hike train as the U.S. Federal Reserve, and inflation at 7% in Europe is higher than it is here. We'll get into more of what's happening with global markets, including Japan's Nikkei, which is also at a record high with Jeff Kleintop, Schwab's chief global investment strategist, in just a couple minutes. Number two, the U.S. housing market feels kind of broken still. U.S. existing home sales fell 23% over the last year, which was the 20th consecutive year-over-year decline on a monthly basis. That's the longest down streak since 2007 to 2009, and it's pretty obvious why it's happening. Just three years ago, the 30-year mortgage rate was 3.24%, and the median existing home price in the United States was $284,000. Today, that 30-year mortgage rate is at 6.39%, and the median home price is at $389,000. That calculates to a $21,000 increase in your down payment, assuming you put 20% down, and a 97% increase in your monthly payment from $987 to $1,944. 
That's very unaffordable for most Americans looking to buy their first home. Plus, there's very little inventory in most housing markets across the country. Why? Because roughly two-thirds of existing mortgages have an interest rate below 4%. And if you're one of those homeowners, the prospect of selling your home now and potentially having to buy another at a much higher interest rate and at a higher monthly payment, that just doesn't make any sense. Homeowners can't afford to move, and home buyers can't afford to buy. Stuck. But don't tell home building stocks about this. They're having their own little house party. So far this year, shares of Pulte Group are up 52%, Toll Brothers are up 33%, and DR Horton shares are up 23%. Investors clearly think things are going to get better in the housing market. And number three, we talk about surveys a lot, and we run our own bi-monthly survey checking in on your investing sentiment. I saw a number, though, in a Gallup survey recently that stopped me in my tracks. Gallup has been conducting a survey of Americans' perceptions of the best long-term investments since 2011. Of the five choices, which are stocks and mutual funds, real estate, gold and savings accounts, and CDs, only 18% of respondents chose stocks as their best investment. The only time it was lower than this was back in 2011 when the country was crawling its way out of the great financial crisis. Real estate topped the list with 34% choosing Home Sweet Home as their best long-term investment, followed by gold at 26%, then stocks, then cash, then bonds. I get it, but I don't get it. Real estate makes sense because you got to live somewhere and the supply is pretty finite, but stocks falling out of favor so heavily is kind of troubling. Let me remind anyone who needs reminding. The S&P 500 has produced a 10% total return in the past year, a 51% total return over the past three years, a 203% return over the past 10 years, a 566% return over the past 30 years, and triple that over the past 50 years. Will it always be this way? Maybe not, but I'm taking the averages. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and sorry to say the debt ceiling showdown is still the main attraction. With that June 1st deadline approaching when U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says we'll not be able to pay our bills, every headline counts, and we're going to be seeing a lot of them this week. President Biden did cut his trip to the G7 summit in Japan short to come back for more discussions with Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, so there will be breakfast in the Oval Office on Monday. We'll hear more earnings results from key retailers this week, including Lowe's, AutoZone, Dick's Sporting Goods, Best Buy, Costco, and Dollar Tree, among others. Those are going to give us some insight into consumer spending trends. And despite fears of an economic downturn, fewer companies in the S&P 500 are discussing the possibility of a recession now compared to the past three quarters, according to FactSet. Of the 90% of S&P 500 companies that have reported earnings so far, just 107 of them have cited the term recession in their earnings calls compared to a high of 238 in the second quarter of last year. On Friday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will issue the latest personal consumption expenditures price index. That's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. The index likely rose about 0.2% last month, accelerating from just 0.1% in March. On an annual basis, the PCE likely climbed 4.1%, which would be the slowest pace since May of 2021 and down from 4.2% in March. Core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy costs, are expected to have risen 4.6% year over year. On the corporate front, Ford will host its Capital Markets Day on Monday from Detroit. The automaker has promised to provide details on how it expects to achieve previously stated targets for 8% EBIT margins on its electric vehicle unit and a 2 million EV production run rate by the year 2026. That's up from 600,000 by the end of this year. No pressure. 
and Microsoft will kick off its three-day developers conference on May 23rd. The event's going to cover many of Microsoft's new APIs, products, and services released later this year and next, including its partnership with chipmaker NVIDIA for new high-powered chipsets for generative AI and its Azure cloud products. Take a good look around the world and you will see mixed signals flashing around global economies and the capital markets. Worries about recessions in Europe and the US, yet rallies in equity markets like we haven't seen in years. High inflation from country to country coupled with high interest rates, yet relatively strong labor markets in most developed economies. It's downright confusing, which is why we're calling in some global expertise to help sort it all out. We're bringing Jeff Kleintop back aboard the Express. He's the chief global investment strategist at Schwab and one of our favorite follows when it comes to the global picture. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Thrilled to be here. So let's go global. We're looking at the DAX at a record high, the Nikkei at a 30-year high, the S&P 500 slowly grinding its way up to about a 9% gain so far this year, even though it's been a relatively quiet market. What is it that equity investors are hoping for as you look at this performance market to market? I think they're hoping for an end to what I'm kind of calling a global recession right now. You know, the markets began to price in an economic, global economic downturn back in well, January of last year. They were a little early in pricing in that slowdown. Now I think it might be a little early in pricing in a recovery, but I think that's what they're counting on the end of the rate hike cycle, maybe a end of some of the worst fears around an economic downturn, particularly the concerns over a, a really bad winter in Europe with regard to weather and, and energy. That really didn't transpire. And so economic momentum improving there. Of course, China, the world's second largest economy, rebounding from its zero COVID recession last year and now driving a global economic growth with uh, incredible demand for travel and consumer goods, all that helping to lift things. I think it's interesting when we back up a little bit and look at the global economy, what's working and what's not. The last two recessions, the one in 0809 and the one in 2020, were what I've been calling the everything, everywhere, all at once recessions. It didn't win any Academy Awards, but it was obvious when the economy was heading down and pretty clear when it was rebounding. Everything turned down in those recessions, manufacturing, services, construction, retail, trade. It was everywhere around the world, free developed economy, and it happened all at once. And I think the debate around this recession is it isn't like that at all. It's not everything. Manufacturing and trade are in a recession. You can look at the manufacturing PMIs or output numbers. Heck, you can look at cardboard box demand. This is one of my favorite indicators. Corrugated liner board, what cardboard boxes are made out of, is plunging to recession lows, demand for that, according to the Fiber Box Association, reflecting the downturn in manufacturing and trade. But services are booming around the world. Just try and book an airline ticket or get a reservation at your favorite restaurant. So I think those economies more sensitive to manufacturing and trade, seeing a bit more of a downturn, those more focused on services are actually seeing some booming growth. We know jobs are more tied to services than manufacturing. One of the reasons why the labor market has held up so well. Yeah, the labor market is confounding, especially here in the U.S. It's slowing down a little bit, but there's still about 1.6 jobs available for every worker, Jeff. But the Fed would like to see the unemployment rate bounce off these multi-decade lows and for wage growth to slow. It's kind of working, but it's kind of working pretty slowly. What needs to happen to accelerate that? It doesn't look like we're going to get a lot more rate hikes necessarily. That's true. The labor pictures remain remarkably robust. But what I heard during this earnings season was a lot more talk about layoffs, workforce reductions, job cuts, then I heard about labor shortages. Yeah, I 
track these phrases when I go through the earnings season. I look not just at the S&P 500, but all the companies in the MSCI World Index around the world. And just do that little text search of how many companies are talking about layoffs, how many are talking about how hard it is still to hire. And boy, we've seen a flip. You know, Much of the last year is still about labor shortages that really flipped in the first quarter to see a lot more talk about layoffs. Now, that doesn't mean they've done those layoffs. It means they may over the coming months. So I think as we get into the summer months here, we might begin to see that tick up. Starts with the job openings beginning to fall, then we start to see actual layoffs take place. So I think in the second half of this year, we could start to see a little bit of a softening in the labor market, not maybe a big rise in the unemployment rate, but maybe taking some of the pressure off wage increases that could at least uh, maybe solidify the idea that uh, central banks are finally finished hiking. You do a lot of that. And I know you point this out in your writings is demand, consumer demand, which is softening a little bit, but still holding up, even though we're pushing, especially here in the US, up against record high credit card debt. We're spending ourselves silly here. Maybe some of that is revenge spending or some of that is reflective of the fact that inflation, especially in food and other categories, is still pretty high. If consumers don't hold up, then all bets are off. But consumers seem to be holding up a lot better, certainly than in past downturns. And maybe this is unique, but maybe we're just going to continue to spend our way through no matter what. So much of that, I think, is dependent on the job market, not just because jobs generate the income we use to spend, but because it gives us the confidence to do the spending as well. If we think our job is intact and, and maybe uh, our wages are going to be rising pretty sharply, well, then we feel pretty confident about making those big ticket purchases. So again, I think if we start to see some softness in the labor market later this year, as maybe these layoff announcements begin to take place, I think you might see that confidence slump a little bit. I know we've seen it in the surveys, but not in the activity. I think we might actually see some of that consumer spending activity begin to pull back. In China already, some of the April data we saw was a little softer than what we saw in the first quarter, suggesting already maybe the momentum behind consumer spending in China is beginning to ebb a little bit. Maybe the People's Bank of China might be the first central bank to cut rates in response, given very low inflation in China. That might usher in a wave of rate cuts by central banks if we start to see that consumer weakness. But I'm a bit more in the camp of saying, I think the labor market and the consumer were a bit more robust than we've seen in prior downturns. And that'll keep the Fed and other central banks from really cutting rates aggressively, as some in the market believe could happen even late this year. So Jeff, what's the new normal look like then in the US, for example, for the next few years in terms of rates, in terms of inflation, higher for longer? Or are we about to see you know, a downward escalator of both of these things happening at the same time? We know inflation is cooling a lot. That said, rates are high and it looks like they're going to be kind of around here for at least the balance of this year and the big first part of next year. Well, I think rather than trying to predict one trajectory for inflation and rates, I think that the more likely outcome might be waves, volatility in rates and inflation. Sure, inflation might be still coming down from these elevated levels, but it may not get back to where the Fed is comfortable, and it certainly may not do so in a straight line. Rarely have we seen inflation come down in a straight line, whether that was in the early 90s or certainly in the 1970s. We can look back at any examples where inflation was elevated, and rarely did it come down in a straight line. Various reasons for this in the US, inflation is largely composed of services, mainly housing, and that's proved very stubborn. So a lot of other components, food, energy, goods prices have really been the reason why inflation has come down as much as it has over the last five to 10 months. 
much stickier now as it relates to housing. In Europe, that's not the case. Most of the inflation in Europe, very little is services. Most of it's actually food and energy and goods. Food is a big component. In fact, the largest component, we know food prices can be volatile. We've got droughts right now in Thailand, the world's second largest rice exporter. We've got a massive culling of birds, of hens in Europe tied to avian flu that's resulted in high egg prices and poultry prices, protein prices. So that can be volatile. I think if we start to get more volatility, you know, we had waves of COVID as it receded. We could have waves of inflation as it receded. And every time we get a little uptick, even if it's only temporary, markets could freak out a little bit that maybe central banks aren't able to declare victory over inflation. That could keep us in a bit more of a volatile environment, not just over the remainder of this year, but looking out for the next few years as well. Right. So investors should come to expect that. And when we look at what's happening, certainly in the U.S. stock market here, again, it's this kind of range bound market, kind of maybe thought we'd have a breakout or so in this past week. But it's basically where we were a year ago, if not more, back in June. So the market really hasn't broken out of this cycle. At the same time, we're up some 9% this year in the S&P 500. It's like Bruce Springsteen says, investors looking for that reason to believe. And is that reason that Profits are going to get better in the second half of the year. Profits are going to get better in the next year. And that that's what we're banking on because we're always looking ahead as investors. You're right. And the outlook for investors is that we, we will likely be improving from this environment, that the earnings recession we're going through now last quarter, this quarter, maybe next quarter is shallow and temporary. And even though this economic downturn because of the strange nature of it with recession and trade and manufacturing and recession, I should say, and services and maybe retail doing a little bit better. It's sort of pulling in different directions, but earnings are therefore troughing at a much milder downturn than what we're used to. And the recovery may be intact as we look out to next year. I think what goes along with that is the idea that maybe things aren't as bad as feared in Europe. You talked about some of the numbers, the Nikkei 225 near 33-year highs are hitting them today. We've got the DAX uh, now now at uh, maybe all-time highs as well in Germany. So what we're seeing here is coming off a very pessimistic environment. PEs in those economies, those countries were very low, well below average, unlike in the US where the price earnings ratio is still above average. And that as sentiment began to improve, really led those markets to outperform. They outperformed last year, they're outperforming again this year. I think this is something to focus on that we're now starting a new cycle where international stocks are leading, I think in the 80s, that cycle we saw international lead, the 90s uh, returned to U.S. leadership, the 2000s went back to international leadership, the 2010s. So U.S. leadership, again, we're reversing and moving into international leadership, better economic growth, better earnings growth. And we're now actually seeing PEs begin to come off much lower levels, all that helping to drive better performance outside the U.S. for the first time in a long time. Yeah, it's very rare that that happens, but it's not only sector rotation that we need to pay attention to as investors. Country to country rotation is super important, and that's why the big diversification word is so important, not just in what you buy, where you buy, but looking across global markets. But a lot of people, Jeff, are calling this a stock picker's market. Active management's back. We need the pros helping pick the healthy stocks. We're looking at quality stocks of companies with strong cash flows. That's really important. How should individual investors like us and our listeners, how should they approach? How should we be approaching optimizing our portfolios today? Is it making sure we have all that kind of exposure? Yeah, I think there's two things you want to focus on. One is thinking more broadly, diversifying outside the US. The US has been a great place to be for a while, but as we just talked about, we're seeing leadership outside the US for a number of key fundamental and behavioral reasons. But in addition in your portfolio, I think you want to think a little bit more about 
fundamentally weighting the factors that drive the investments in your portfolio rather than merely market cap. Last cycle, all about market cap. What we're seeing now is that focus on quality you just mentioned, low price to cash flow. A classic example, those stocks continue to outperform. They did this year and last year as well. That's where we're seeing this emphasis on quality. Companies with lots of cash flow, the ability to fund growth out of their own cash flow rather than expensively borrowing right now. It's cheap to borrow back in the 2010s. So companies that didn't have a lot of cash flow did very well. We call those long duration stocks. <clears throat> companies with very good near-term cash flow. We'll call those short-duration stocks are the ones that are performing well now. You'll find more of those in fundamentally weighted benchmarks that put more emphasis on those type of quality factors. So there's two things there, thinking more about broad diversification and then within your implementation, focusing more on fundamental rather than market cap. You and your team put out a great note on these short-duration stocks and what to look for. Folks, we'll link to that in the show notes along with the, the rest of the good stuff coming out of Jeff and his team. But there also are choices right now, Jeff, that we haven't seen in a while. We went from a period of Tina where there is no alternative to Tara where there are plenty of alternatives right now. There are real alternatives. There's money in the bank. There's CDs. There's money markets. There's a lot of different places investors could get exposure to alpha if they want. We haven't seen that in a very long time, although that's been sort of par for the course for the past several months. So now that you have some real choices as an investor, you can broaden out your what you're looking at and not just be a stock picker and not just load it up with the indexes and hope for the best, right? That's true. We've seen flows this year, money flows this year into fixed income, of course, because yes, yields are back. We've also seen, just to elaborate on my prior point, international flows. Actually seeing from the, the ICI data, the so industry-wide data on uh, money flows into ETFs and, and mutual funds, we're seeing money go into international stock funds. For the first time in a, in a long time, first time in over a year, we're seeing money coming into those, even as money in U.S. stocks begins to drain out a little bit. So people are reallocating their portfolio a little bit out of those U.S.-led, maybe a handful of tech stocks where they found their homes over the last several years and really thinking more broadly about fixed income and about international as well. And I think that's healthy. I think recognizing that we're in a more volatile period for the stock market, not just in terms terms of the, the ups and downs we've seen over the last year, but really looking to maybe a, a cycle that has higher volatility than we're used to. Broader diversification, fixed income, equities, international and U.S. makes a lot more sense in achieving those long-term financial goals. Without a doubt. All right, let's talk about the debt ceiling. We can't avoid it. By the time this comes out on Monday, it could be resolved or it might be just heading to the deadline coming up on June 1st where the U.S. is supposed to be running out of money but there are risks out there, both seen and unseen, that could really hurt investors and consumers. Give us a couple examples of those that are not seen right now if we crash through that debt ceiling that could really hurt us as investors and as consumers. Congress has always ended up raising the debt ceiling, right? 22 times in 22 years, despite each time being a headache. So I think the chance of default is very low, but certainly a brief default or delay in payment on treasuries may have wide-ranging ramifications. Remember, this is the broadest, deepest market in the world. We could have an implication, a uh, longer-lasting one, on the value of the dollar, of course, not only just temporarily in the markets, but if markets begin to fear that uh, there are regular funding issues going on with the U.S., they might begin to shy away from the dollar. We've often heard uh, lately about 
concerns about moving away from the dollar as a reserve asset. I think we're long away from moving from that, but more and more trade, more and more could be held outside of the dollar and, and that could uh, weigh on the dollar, rising, lifting inflation in the US as we import more and more. So that's one way to think about that. Another is uh, that we could see investors begin to favor, let's say, Japanese assets. A US default would likely challenge the safe haven status of the US dollar favor the yen, the other major safe haven currency, spurring investors to move money out of the U.S. into Japanese investments. And, you know, we've had something called the carry trade for a long time, where investors borrowed very cheaply in yen in Japan at zero interest rates and invested in the U.S. and in treasuries. Well, that could begin to reverse. That trade could unwind. Money moved back into Japan, unwinding 20 years of a carry trade that could have wide-ranging ramifications on risk assets. We could also see precious metals rally on this. Gold would likely meaningfully rally in a U.S. default as it did in 2011. And we could certainly see longer-term interest rates come down. Believe it or not, short-term treasuries could sell off, but longer-term treasuries might actually rally on expectations that the withholding of funds to service government obligations would lead to a recession that would further pull down long-term interest rates. So I think the other thing to consider is the whipsaw from default to no default could be fast, hours, days. So trading the default would mean being very nimble. Yeah, absolutely. And we've already seen that movement in treasuries in the super short-term treasuries, the one month and the three month, because a lot of investors not trusting what's going to happen here in the next few weeks. And then, of course, we could have a credit rating downgrade. We had one in 2011, even after the debt ceiling was raised. Could it happen again? And if so, how should individual investors like us protect ourselves in the event that that could potentially happen? Yeah, so Moody's has been quite clear that any non-payment on a U.S. obligation would result in a D, a default rating. And if that were to last for more than 15 days, you'd likely see more than just maybe a one-notch downgrade of U.S. debt. So uh, yeah, that's something that could happen again and certainly have ramifications in terms of, again, reserves and credit spreads. It's interesting. Right now, there is a debt ceiling deliberation going on in Europe, but no one's really focused on it because it's unlikely to re result in a risk of default. The Eurozone had a debt limit in place prior to the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, but they suspended those in, in response to those efforts. But on April 26th, the European Commission unveiled a proposal to limit government debt and, and the budget deficit for member nations gradually trying to bring down debt levels across the EU. So that debate is going on right now. And of course, you've got two sides to that debate as well. Germany and the Netherlands are saying, well, you know, we need really hard and fast rules. France, Spain, others that might find themselves in violation of these limits are saying we need a much more flexible approach. And the latest draft of those rules looks like they would have four, even up to seven years to begin to lower their debt if it was over that ceiling. So a very different approach than sort of the showdown we're seeing in the US. But markets could begin to favor that type of approach, a more flexible approach, but a more disciplined approach to managing debt. And you could actually see maybe increasing interest in European debt relative to US treasuries. Yeah, for some reason, we have this very hard and fast rule here in the United States about our debt ceiling put in place around 1917. But you mentioned we've been raising it 22 times out of the last 22 times we've come up against it about 78 times if you take it all the way back in history. So it's not new to raise the debt ceiling or at least kick the can further down the road. It seems like an own goal if we're not able to do this, if politicians aren't able to do this. But you and I have zero control over that. So beyond the debt ceiling, beyond a lot of the things we talked about, I love the, the unusual 
indicators that you always bring up. You brought up cardboard. What else is out there that's not getting enough attention that investors should be paying attention to these days, Jeff? I like to look at a lot of uh, maybe non-traditional indicators. And it, one of the things I'm, I'm focused on right now is looking at uh, weather patterns. I, I know this is uh, kind of esoteric, but we just talked a little bit about food inflation. And one of the things driving that is drought in Southeast Asia. So taking a look at what precipitation looks like could be very important there right now as it drives inflation in Europe and the, the ability of the European Central Bank to continue to raise interest rates or whether they will or not. Looking at China engaging the pace of its economic recovery, I'm looking at things like weekend box office results because it's data I can count on. We get it from all the major uh, media companies. So you can verify that as opposed to maybe Chinese government data, which is maybe less verifiable. You can look at things like air pollution in China run by EPA tests done by the U.S. consulates in different cities in China. Of course, more air pollution means more travel, more activity, more manufacturing, things like that. Gives you kind of an indication of what the world's largest consumer market is up to. I'm also taking a look at the housing in the U.S., the focus is still on inflation and housing is still the stickiest component there. So what's going on with the housing rental rates in the U.S. Uh, critical to, to getting the inflation outlook. But I guess if I had to put my finger on one favorite metric, I always watch the PMIs. They're coming out next week, the preliminary ones. I've always found them to be very useful indicators for growth in the economy and profits. I guess I'd have to say the PMIs are kind of my desert island data points. I'm on a desert island. I can only get one piece of economic data. It's probably those purchasing managers index. Yeah, well, they're the ones making those purchasing decisions. And a lot of those are very long-term purchasing decisions. So if you're running a manufacturing company or an industrial company, you're talking about orders going out six, 12 months in some cases. So if they're feeling confident, you'll see strength there. If they're not, You'll feel it right away, and that'll bleed into the rest of the other economic indicators. We love that one. Well, you've given us some great indicators, some great things to watch, but you know we're a site built on our financial terms. I know you love using them in your terrific notes out to investors. What's your favorite term right now, Jeff, and why? What's the most important term for investors to be thinking about? You know, honestly, I, I don't think it's necessarily a financial term. It's explore. Look beyond where you've been investing over the last 10 or 15 years. We just talked about some of the incredible momentum we're seeing in markets outside the U.S. in areas of the portfolio that really haven't worked in a while. Laggards are becoming leaders. You want to explore around the core of your portfolio, which has probably been U.S. and maybe just tech stocks over the last 15 years or so. Exploring now is more important than ever. Great word. We love that. You could apply it to anything, but we love using it in the investing realm. And that's why we love having you on the show, Going Global with Jeff Kleintop, the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Schwab. We love your notes. We love your research. And thanks so much for coming back aboard the Express. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term come to us from Andrew Robinson, who hit us up on the gram recommending dark pools for this week's term. We like that term because dark pools are under the spotlight lately. According to our favorite website, dark pools are private asset exchanges designed to provide additional liquidity and anonymity for trading large blocks of securities away from the public eye. Dark pools provide pricing and cost advantages to buy-side institutions, such as mutual funds and pension funds, which claim that these benefits ultimately accrue to the retail investors who invest in these funds. However, dark pools' lack of transparency makes them susceptible to conflicts of interest by their owners and predatory trading practices by high-frequency trading firms. The SEC does regulate dark pools, and with the rise in fabulous crashes of some crypto brokers lately, the commission is looking deeper into these pools, especially with a lot of crypto fish swimming inside them. 
Good suggestion, Mr. Robinson. Socks for you, my friend. DM us with a good mailing address for quick and easy delivery. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week. All that talk about people losing faith in stocks as a good long-term investment kind of shook me a little bit. I definitely have asset bias, by the way, but hey, I work for Investopedia. I'm an investor and I grew up on stocks. I'd like other people to learn how they can help them build wealth too. So let's listen to the Oracle of Omaha in an interview with CNBC about his very first investment. I I bought my first stock in April of 1942. I was 11. Pearl Harbor had happened three or four months earlier. We were losing the war. I mean, you want to talk about a bad outlook (laughs) for the country. The country's not going to go away. The plants aren't going to go away. The people aren't going to go away. The talents aren't going to go away. The country will grow in value over time. Now, who gets it is another question. But Turns out Warren did have good timing and a lot of time in the market. That always helps more than anything. Special thanks to Jeff Kleintop for climbing back aboard the Express. His wisdom is always welcome on this train. We'll link to his latest reports and research, as well as all the good stuff we cited on today's show. Find that wherever you ride the Express and on Investopedia.com slash The Express Podcast. Hold your heads high this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 